Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Monday, March the 21st, 2022. It is currently 10.15 p.m. Central Time, and welcome to a special late-night episode of the Theology Central Podcast. I'm coming to you live right here from Abilene, Texas, and the goal this evening at this late hour, I don't know who will be actually listening live. If you're listening live, thank you so much for tuning in. If you hear this later, well, thank you so much for, for listening at a later time. Whenever you hear this, thank you so very much. But if you happen to hear the earlier broadcast today, or if you heard part one of this, it's not labeled part one, but if you heard the, the first broadcast in regards to this subject, you know we didn't finish what we started. And there was a lot of crazy things happening during that broadcast that, that created, I, I think I did as well as I could, but all all kinds of things were happening. All right. We were having a, a, a kind of a thunderstorm going on outside with some high winds. We were having some power issues going on. We had some internet issues happening and right there around all of that going on, I get notified that my brother had been bitten by a rattlesnake. And uh, come to find out, he's currently in the ICU. He was bitten uh, more than once. Uh, They think two rattlesnakes bit him. Um, He's not doing very well. So in the midst of all of that, I was uh, trying to deal with a controversy about Andy Stanley. And I, what I was attempting to do was, because there's something that is very popular right now within the Christian world that I am not a fan of, and that is taking a one-minute clip, a two-minute clip, a three-minute clip of a preacher, throw it up on social media, and then everyone just immediately watches that two- or three-minute clip and then just starts condemning, judging, you know, critiquing, and just just tearing whoever the preacher is apart based off a two-, three-minute, four-minute, five-minute clip. Now, there's no question that maybe the clip does demonstrate bad hermeneutics. Maybe it completely demonstrates a wrong way of interpreting scripture. Maybe it, maybe it even contains heresy, but I still think you have to be very careful not to jump on someone condemning them based off three, four, five minutes. You need to stop and say, wait a minute, I'm not going to make a comment here. I'm going to go listen to the entire sermon and then offer a critique or offer some thoughts, because that's only fair to do. Hopefully, you would want someone to do that for you, right? Hopefully, you wouldn't want someone to judge you based off two or three minutes of something you said when you had been speaking for an hour. I mean, many of these sermons where they take these small clips, they're 40 minutes long, an hour long. Well, how can you judge everything about a preacher and everything about a sermon based off two or three minutes of a 40, 40, 45-minute hour-long sermon. It just seems it's not fair. It's not biblical. It's not godly. It's not merciful. It's not gracious. It's not loving. It's it's nothing like that. Now, I got no problem critiquing sermons. I got no problem offering a review. I just think that it should be fair. And so our approach has been and will always be, we take the entire sermon. That's number one. Number two, I don't listen to it first because I don't want to sit there and rehearse all of my responses. And then three, we basically listen to it together. And guess what that gives you? You get to hear everything that preacher has to say. You get to hear my critique. 
And then you get to make the decision of, well, you know what? I can't, I think I agree with the preacher. No, I think I agree with the critique. You know what? I disagree with both of them. You get to hear that. And I think that that makes it, basically it feels like a bunch of people getting together to listen to a sermon and talk about it instead of it being a hit piece, right? Because I can, I can scour the internet and go find really bad sermons, really bad sermons, really quote unquote heretical sermons, and then build a ministry by critiquing all of the supposed bad sermons out there because I'm listening to them first and I'm, I have an agenda. What I try to do in most cases is, is just, hey, here's a sermon. Let's listen to it together. And whatever happens, happens. It may turn out to be great may turn out to be a disaster. Now, in some cases, I know I am reviewing a sermon from a church that has a theological position that I completely disagree with, but I always try to be transparent about that. So we were dealing with a controversy that once again, kind of, well, they, they used this technique. They took one small section of a sermon and then immediately started attacking it. So here's what happened. Earlier today, a, a news article was published. Uh, on Monday, March the 21st, 2022, earlier this morning, headline, Andy Stanley's tweet about the Bible is seductive and harmful. So a tweet is put out there, I'm assuming by uh, Andy Stanley. Now, let me make it, let's be very fair here. First and foremost, that's on Andy Stanley, because I don't think you should ever post anything theological on Twitter, because for the most part, that's not the correct platform to discuss anything biblical or theological, because you don't, I mean, what, 120, 180 characters, whatever, how many characters it is, it's just not the right platform for that. So, but he, he puts out a tweet that reads this way, the Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, obviously that got people's attention because it, it, it feels like it, it, that what Andy Stanley is saying is, hey, we don't need an accurate Bible. We don't need an inerrant Bible. We don't need an accurate Bible. We don't need an inerrant Bible. We just need Jesus. Where immediately you're going to be like, wait a minute. He just basically said we don't need the Bible, and if we don't need if we don't need the Bible or we don't have an accurate Bible, well then how do we even know we have Jesus, right? Because where do we learn about Jesus? So it just seems like a, a really messed up concept, a messed up idea. And this news story takes the tweet and then boom, it begin it immediately begins to attack his position. And they, they tell us that this tweet was taken from a sermon. See note, one quote from a sermon. Uh, that was preached on March the 6th at Browns Bridge Church in Cumming, Georgia. All right. So then immediately they said, uh, the, the author of this article says, when I first read the tweet, I was saddened and I was sickened. And then he begins to, well, basically condemn what he thinks. Uh, I keep saying, if I said Charles Stanley, I apologize. What Andy Stanley appears to be saying, he begins to condemn it. Now, nowhere in the article does the author go, now, this is what I've done. When I saw the tweet and I figured out that it was from this sermon, I took a deep breath. I went and found the sermon. I listened to all of the sermon, and here's what I discovered. No, 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 no. It sounds like he sees tweet, reacts to tweet without trying to get any context, trying to get any understanding, because it's just condemn and judge, condemn and judge. 
So what I decided to do was like, okay, let's just turn on the sermon and let's review all of it. And here is what we discovered in part one. Now, originally it was supposed to be just one one episode that we were going to cover all of this, but it took longer because of all of the problems and everything that was going on. But, and it was going to take a long time anyway. But here's basically what I think occurred. Now, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, I'm trying to do my best to give Andy Stanley the benefit of the doubt. Now, I will, I will completely acknowledge that the way, what he, if, if this is what he was trying to do, he went about it in a really questionable way that was going to lead to some problems. But this is what it sounds like Andy Stanley was trying to do. Andy Stanley was trying to speak to the culture of people who are questioning their faith, doubting their faith, becoming disgruntled, disillusioned with Christianity, who are deconstructing, who in a sense, as he says in the sermon, they have their hand on the door handle and they're about to walk away from their faith. And what he what he's attempting to do is tell those people, stop, 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 stop. Don't walk away yet. Don't walk away yet. Don't, don't walk away. Because what you need to understand is that our faith even if we were to, even if we question the 65 books of the Bible, even if we say that 65 books of the Bible are not inspired, are not inerrant, are not accurate, as long as we have one book that gives us the details of the life of Christ, it gives us who he is, what he did, what he accomplished, his death, burial, resurrection, if we have an account that's accurate about Jesus, that would, uh, that would be enough alone to hold on to your faith. If, ever, if, if you throw out everything else, as long as we have one accurate account of Jesus, that should be sufficient. That is kind of the argument he's trying to make. Now, you could argue whether is that, that's a good apologetic, is that a bad apologetic, but I see what he's trying to do. Hey, 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 guys, for all of you who are questioning, if I can present to you one accurate account of Jesus, you can't walk away. You've got to lean in. Now, once you lean in, then, then we can address the, the other books. That's kind of his approach. The problem is he doesn't state it in a very clear way. His, his way of stating it is, hey, we don't need an accurate Bible. We don't need an accurate Bible. We don't need an inerrant Bible. All we need is Jesus. But the reason I think he, that's what he was attempting to do, because immediately after he seems to imply we don't need an accurate Bible, we don't need an inerrant Bible, he immediately turns around and says, everyone, open your Bibles to the gospel of Luke. Luke is accurate. Luke is trustworthy. So immediately he at least makes an argument for the accuracy, trustworthiness, dare I say, inerrancy of the gospel of Luke. So, so clearly what he was attempting to do in his opening illustration, he almost argues against it immediately. So I'm not saying it's the best way to approach it. I'm not saying it's the smartest. Look, I'm not even saying that Andy Stanley necessarily, I don't know what his view is on the rest of scripture. I don't know. I don't know. Um, There there are some people today who are talking about the story saying, no, he believes in the inerrancy of scripture. So this makes no sense. Well, it makes sense if you listen to the sermon, because then we can understand what he's attempting to do. Maybe a bad idea, but I think that's what he's trying to do. But we made it about 13 minutes into the sermon and, and then, of course, we had a, like power, power, we lost internet connection, and everything went crazy. But I wanted to go back. I've backed up the sermon to the 12-minute mark, and we're going to try to review and finish this up. 
Why? Because I want to be fair. I want to be, look, I don't, I don't agree with Andy Stanley's theology. I don't understand. I don't agree with the way he does church. I don't agree with a, a lot of things about Andy Stanley, but whether I agree or disagree with someone, I, the best I can do is try to be fair and give them the opportunity to speak for themselves. When we're done with this, you may walk away with still a negative view of Andy Stanley, but guess what? At least you heard everything he had to say. You may walk away and say, well, okay, that news article was a little unfair, but I can definitely see why some people would be concerned. Now, remember, they said that the sermon, or the, they said the tweet, is seductive and harmful. Well, if the t- t- tweet is seductive and harmful, then, and it comes from the sermon, then you're saying by default that the sermon is seductive and harmful. And I don't know if that's an accurate description of everything Andy Stanley was trying to say. It may be an accurate description of the tweet, but the tweet is a quote from an, a, I think it was, what, it's about a 30, 33, 34, 35 minute sermon. That is part one of, I think, three, four parts. So again, maybe even longer, because it looks like they're going to work through the gospel of Luke. So I don't know how many parts it's going to be. So, I mean, you, you, you got to be fair here. You got to be fair. So please do, just, if you see people doing that, if you see someone post some quote, I don't care if it's uh, or some sermon clip of Stephen Furtick or some crazy fundamentalist or whatever it may be, just, if, if you want to, if you want to say, find any, if you want to make any comment, just simply say, what sermon is that? When was it preached so that I can go look up the entire sermon? Then go look up the entire sermon and then draw your own conclusion. Give people the benefit of the doubt. I know that this sounds like something that you learned in kindergarten. It sounds so cliche and it's so outdated, but I still think this is a biblical concept. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Is is that so hard? Have we even lost that within Christianity? All right. I don't agree with everything about Andy Stanley, but I think he has a right to be heard fairly, right? So let's let him finish his sermon. He's basically just now getting to Luke. And so after he's kind of given you that kind of given this idea that we don't really need an accurate Bible, Christianity is not dependent upon an accurate Bible. As he's kind of given that idea, then he immediately turns around and says, however, Luke is trustworthy. Luke is trustworthy. That, that's kind of the way he's trying to build his argument. Here we go. Let's just jump right back in. 12-minute mark. He just has, I'll just, I'll read it to you. He's just read Luke chapter 1, verse 1, which in the King, in the King James reads as, as this, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Andy Stanley point he's been making is that many people, we don't know exactly how many, but many people had had decided to try to write an account of everything that had occurred and everything that had happened basically regarding Jesus. Many had taken this into, to, uh, to, to, to attempt to do this. So he's really emphasizing that. Here we go. Many people have endeavored to draw up an account of the things that have literally happened or been fulfilled right here among a uh, quick question, don't answer this out loud. Do you know how many will undertake to draw up an account of your life? Not. 
not many. That's how many, okay? <laughs> the only people that are gonna even know you existed or know I existed after our grandkids are not many, unless you do something extraordinarily great or extraordinarily horrible, okay? But not many people are gonna write up an account of our life. And Luke tells us, he's like, hey, I'm starting this thing out, but you need to know, I'm not the only one doing this. Many people have endeavored to get this down in such a way that people can understand and experience through what's written, what has happened right here. Now, listen, check it out. There are not many, not many people even undertook to draw up the accounts of the lives of famous people from ancient times or, or especially the first century. I mean, Tiberius Caesar, who was, you know, Caesar during the life of Jesus. We, there's not a storyline. You have to piece it together. Um, see a pilot, there's virtually nothing. Even Herod the Great, who, um, you know, Josephus gives us a storyline and, you know, almost a moment by moment account of the life of Herod the Great. But other than Josephus, that's it. And Herod the Great did extraordinary things, but there's just one. But here, here's a question. Do you know how many detailed narrative accounts we have of the lives of ancient peasants, crucified criminals, even famous first century rabbis, None, none. We have quotes, we have legendary stories, but I'm just telling you, this is why you gotta sit up and pay attention. There is nothing even close to close to close to what we find in Luke's presentation of the life of Jesus. But that should cause us to ask a question. Why in the world would Luke bother? I mean, he's a busy guy, lots going on, okay? I mean, food is scarce. This is the first century. Why in the world would he bother to bring us a detailed account of a Galilean day laborer turned rabbi that was executed by Rome, who was again, rejected by his own people and rejected by the empire. Why even tell us the story? Why is that even a story worth telling? And why would others try to tell us that story as well? Okay, see what he's trying to do here. What he's trying to say, because he started the sermon by talking to those who are deconstructing, who are questioning your faith, thinking about walking from the faith, walking away from the faith. So what he's trying to say is, okay, you may basically, in a roundabout way, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing. Again, I, I, I think he could have stated this all in a better way, but it, it feels to me what he's trying to do is say, hey guys, you may be questioning the faith and doubting the faith. And maybe there may be plenty of things in the Bible that you reject and you question and you don't believe. But if everything in the Bible is questionable, not accurate, it's not inerrant, and you, you throw all of that away, well, we still have the account here in Luke, which he is arguing is, is accurate. In fact, the fact that there's even this account that Luke wrote tells you something interesting is going on, something something you've got to think about because why would Luke take the time, why would many people be taking the time to write the story about this Jesus if all Jesus was was some crazy guy who was a carpenter who ends up being a rabbi who then ultimately gets killed for basically being a criminal by Rome. Like, And his own people, the Jews, reject him. Why would so many people try to write an account about him? This would tell you, those of you who are questioning your faith, that, whoa, slow down. There's something about Jesus. So you need to stop and consider that. He's trying to build, and he's trying to build an apologetic by, in a sense, starting where the people are and then trying to bring them to a different conclusion. Now, again, he could have stated it in a different way, probably could have been uh, a, a more careful with his language, but that's what it appears he's trying to do. I could be a thousand percent wrong here, 
but I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt because his original argument, like everyone's acting like he does, he doesn't believe in the Bible. It, it just makes no sense in the context of the whole sermon because what is he having everyone look at? The Bible. He's having everyone look at the Gospel of Luke and he's treating it as if it's an accurate account, which means he's not throwing out the whole Bible. It's just a really bad attempt to try to relate to those with great doubt. It's it's wonderful that he was trying to relate. I just think it was a bad attempt. But let's let's move on because uh, we definitely want to finish this this evening. Here we go. Going back to the first word of his gospel, why so many? Why some? Why would one even tell us this story? Why would there be four? Why would there be many? And the answer is simple, because something extraordinary happened something that had implications for future generations. But it wasn't just extraordinary. Something good had happened. Something good had happened on behalf of not just the people in Judea and Galilee. Something had happened that was good for, on behalf of people for the whole world. And somebody had to tell it. He writes, many Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, not among them. This happened. This is why you got to pay attention. This happened in his lifetime. Ancient history was often written by people who lived long after the events, and they would cobble together the different writings and quotes and try to put together, you know, an account of, of what happened. But very, very rarely do we have anyone who actually lived during the time of the person they write about. Part of it was you couldn't say anything negative about these people because the people that we know anything about were famous people and rich people, and they wanted to make sure their reputation was preserved for generations, and they looked good, but not the case with Jesus of Nazareth. Luke, as we're going to discover, and if you read the book of Acts, he actually knew the men and women who played key roles in the story of Jesus. He goes on. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those, ready for this, who from the first, in other words, when this thing first began, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, Luke says, what I'm about to tell you, I got from the eyewitnesses. I talked to the people who were there and sure enough, read the book of Acts. He knew Peter, he knew John, he knew James, the brother of Jesus. He said, I have interviewed everybody I can because I wanted to make sure there's at least one account that covers all the bases. Then he says this, with this in mind, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated parakalutheo, one Greek word, carefully investigated. In other words, it means having carefully followed along or having closely paid attention to the events. I myself have done all the research I can, talk to everybody I can. I too have investigated everything from the beginning. This is why Luke brings us the story of the birth of Jesus from the beginning. This is why Luke brings us the story of the birth of John the Baptist from the beginning and the birth of Jesus. Jesus and the announcement of John the Baptist about Jesus. He said, I've gone as far back as I can and I wanna give you the whole story. This is not once upon a time. This is not a Bible story. This is Luke telling us what happened in his lifetime and it had to be told because it was extraordinary and it was good. And it was- See, he's, he's, he's making an argument for the accuracy, the historical reliability of the gospel of Luke as that giving an account from eyewitnesses. 
He's already argued that he believes all the Gospels were written before 70 AD, so he goes with early datings of the Gospel, and he's arguing for the reliability of it, which is a very different picture from that news article that I read in part one of this. Again, go to the Christian Post, you'll see, read the article. They they just attack him basically as being a liberal Bible denier, and that's not exactly accurate based off this sermon. Now, it may there may be other things Andy Stanley has said. By all means, that can be critiqued in its proper context. But in this sermon, if you're going to, to try to pull something from this sermon to attack, to judge, to condemn, I, I'm telling you, you're, 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 you're not accurately, you're not giving a fair representation of what was said. And that's got to stop within Christianity. We've got to stop attacking people Without, I mean, come on, let's be fair as we can be. All right, here, here we go. Let's continue. It's for the world, and it was for every generation. It is amazing. We don't even think about it. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus. Are you kidding? Why? Because something extraordinary happened. He says, with this in mind, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too, along with many others, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Again, here's my point. This is, this is a point for the day, but it's such a big, 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 big deal, especially if you're struggling with faith or moving in the direction of faith or you're about to turn your back, okay? Luke is not writing the Bible. Luke didn't have any idea there would ever be a the Bible, Luke didn't know if his document would survive the first century. Luke had no idea if anyone would read it other than the person he's writing it for. He's not writing the Bible. The gospel of Luke isn't part of the Bible. The gospel of Luke is something that, as we're gonna discover in a few minutes, was included in the collection of documents that was eventually titled the Bible because of what this story contained when it was written, who wrote it, and what it said about Jesus. Luke was documenting the life and teaching. See, what he's trying to do, he's trying to relate to these people, to people who are deconstructing, questioning their faith, about to walk away from the faith. He's like, look, don't, what he's trying to say is don't look at Luke as a Bible story. Look at it as a historical account of the life of Jesus. And if it is accurate and if it is true, you can't walk away. You can't deconstruct because it's an actual, historical, reliable document. You have to deal with the facts. That is what he's trying to say. That is his apologetical approach. Now, he, you, could, you could say, well, you could clean up the language a little more. You could, you could try to possibly not lead people to, to question the whole Bible. But I, I see what he's trying to do. And the more you listen, I think the more it's becoming evident what he is trying to do. Let's continue. Of Jesus, which means, this is so important, we shouldn't take Luke seriously because it's in the Bible. We shouldn't take the gospel of Luke seriously because it's in the Bible. Luke's account, Luke's account of the life of Jesus was written 300 years before the Bible was assembled, as we said a minute ago. So Luke's account, this is important, his account of the life of Jesus didn't become reliable when it was placed in the collection of documents we call the Bible. Luke's account, Luke's account of the life of Jesus was included in the Bible because Luke's account was considered reliable, this is so important, when it was written. Let me illustrate it this way. 
When you go, when you travel and you stay in a hotel, you decide to go out to eat and you've got some jewelry, you got your iPad, you got your watch, you know, you got some stuff that's important and you find there's a safe in the closet in the hotel room. This is not a trick question. Don't answer out loud because it's gonna sound like a trick question. Do you put things in that safe to make them valuable? Or do you put things in that safe because they're valuable? You put them in there because they're valuable. The safe doesn't make them valuable. The fact that you put them in a safe is evidence of the fact that you consider them valuable. So here's the point. Luke's account, this first century account of the life of Jesus was considered valuable the moment it was written. And it was eventually placed in the collection of books we call the Bible, not to make it valuable and not to make it true, but because it had been considered valuable and true from the moment it was written because of when it was written and who wrote it. So, as you struggle or if you're struggling with faith or if you ever struggle with faith and you're like, how could God and evil in the world and all those big questions that we should all be bothered by, we should all ask. Again, we don't ever have to look the other way and just pretend and God's just gonna work it all out. But you know, I dare not look over there and see what's going on with them. When you find yourself in all of that, or if you're considering Christianity, maybe the first, for the first time or the first time in a long time, it really comes down to this. Is Luke lying? Is he lying? Okay, he can't be mistaken. This is when people say, oh, he's mistaken. No, no, no. That's what you say if you've never read the gospel of Luke or the book of Acts. You read the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You may come away with all kinds of theories, but he was mistaken. You can be mistaken about an event. You know, you can be mistaken about a conversation. You can't be mistaken about the story arc of an entire life and what happened for the next 20 years after that story ended. He wasn't mistaken. It comes down to this. He either carefully investigated everything from the beginning or he didn't. And if he did, and there's no reason to think that he didn't, if he did, then my friends, you should lean in. I should lean in. See, there you go. He's, he's making an argument that it's trustworthy, that it's accurate, that it is true. That, so... I, I know the way he started it made everyone nervous and I can see why the quote was taken and I can see why everyone would, would yell and, and be upset. But when before, by the time you get to this point, we've got like about 12 minutes left of the sermon, the whole tone has dramatically changed. And see, this is why you can't judge a sermon by a two or three minute clip. You got to listen to everything. Now, there are pl- there'll be plenty of times by the time you get to the end of the sermon, it will be far worse than the two or three minute clip. And there'll be many times by the time you get to the end of the sermon uh, that your whole understanding of the two and three minute clip has completely changed. That is why we have to stop this nonsense. And this is just serving as a perfect example of it. So b- by the time this is over, he's at least arguing Luke is accurate, Luke is true, and there's no reason to question it, and there's no reason to doubt it. And so, therefore, don't walk away from the faith, lean in. That, that I mean, he, that is about as, as accurate as that can be of what he has said. Here we go. We should lean in because something extraordinary happened, and if it happened, it's good. And it's good for you, and it's good for your family, and it's good for the world. And when you read the gospel of Luke, and if you read the book of Acts, you know what's clear? Luke believes what he's written. 
Luke is absolutely confident that what he, what he documents actually took place because it's based on his conversations with the people who were there. Back to Luke. He says, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was probably a wealthy believer who was like, okay, I, you know, I, I believe Jesus is Messiah um, and I keep hearing all these stories with somebody kind of put it all together for me. And Luke apparently wrote the gospel of Luke, not for us and not for the world, but apparently so this one gentleman he knew could read the whole thing and say, okay, now I think I've got it. I too, he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And this is so powerful. And if you're wrestling with faith, you know, I get it. I I don't claim that I'd be able to answer your questions, but this next statement is so powerful. He said, the reason I took the time to get this down, the reason I wrote this is so that you may know the certainty. In other words, he says, I want you to know the certainty I want you to be secure in your knowledge of the things that you have been taught. Because Theophilus was a believer and he had been taught. And Luke is like, I wanna come in behind the things you've been taught and I wanna give it context because I want you to have certainty so that he wouldn't be left with the impression and so that you wouldn't be left with the impression and so that you wouldn't be left with the impression that Christianity is all about faith and faith. We just gotta have faith, said not Jesus, okay? We just gotta believe stuff, said nobody who followed Jesus after the resurrection. That Christianity isn't faith and faith and Luke takes the time to document the life of Jesus so that people in the first century during the time when these events happened would know with certainty what had happened because their faith would be anchored to an event and ultimately to a person. That Luke wanted to ensure that our faith was anchored to that event, the resurrection of Jesus. That as we saw earlier, would launch the movement the church. And then this was so fascinating. This is such fascinating history. When it was safe and when it was legal, the bishops came out of hiding and they put together the very first Bible. And this is amazing to me. And I, again, there's just, I don't even know how to put words around this. Think about Luke. He's living in the first century. Okay, things aren't going well for a lot of the little ecclesias of Jesus. He travels all around the Mediterranean Rim with the Apostle Paul on several of Apostle Paul's journeys. He's seen the Apostle Paul beat up. I mean, he's, he's seen the whole thing. And I'll just throw this in right here as we wrap this up and we're about done listening to this sermon. Another thing that people did not do when they wrote their article and started jumping all over this and condemning and and saying everything, if you, again, in the news article, it states where this sermon was preached and what church. If you go to the church's website, Browns Bridge, right? Browns Bridge Church, Cummings, Georgia. If you go to their website, here's what they believe about the scripture. We believe the entire Bible is the inspired word of God and that men were moved by the spirit to God to write the very words of scripture. Therefore, we believe the Bible is without error. There you have, even in their doctrinal statement, they go against what everyone was jumping to the conclusion about. So that is another piece of evidence to prove what I, my assertion that what Andy Stanley was attempting to do was just try to give a very, you know, kind of shocking 
opening illustration to get everyone's attention. Maybe not shocking is a good word. A, a very, uh, how would we say it? Um, a very intriguing, a, a one that will get you to stop what you're doing. Wait a minute. What did he just say? Christianity does not rest on an accurate, inerrant scripture. Wait, wait, what did he just say? Okay, wait, what, what's going on? And, and it got, I got everyone's attention. The only problem is you got everyone's attention. You could have done it in a different way and still got the same point across that you were, or, well, you could have even got your point across even more clear if you would have done it in a different way. Now, by the time you're done with the sermon, you're illustrating a completely different thing than you're opening. You're, you, you come to a conclusion that seems to be very different from the opening illustration where you seem to imply that, hey, it doesn't matter if the Bible's accurate. It doesn't matter if the Bible is inerrant. You clearly are preaching in a church that believes the inerrancy of Scripture, and clearly now you're arguing at least for the inerrancy, accuracy, and truthfulness of the Gospel of Luke. So I understand what you're you're trying to tell people. Hey guys, look, even if you question, even if you question all of the Bible, as long as I can give you one book that's accurate that gives us the story of Jesus, you can't walk away from the faith. You got to stick around, and you need to investigate. You need to lean in, and then we'll work our way back to the rest of the books. He could have stated it that way, and maybe he will before it's over. Maybe he will. It's over. But I can tell you this: the new story is an inac- is not an accurate representation of what occurred, and that I. When are Christians going to stop doing this? When are Christians going to stop doing this? I I I I just I don't know. I, I oh, it drives me crazy. All right, here we go. Meanwhile, he's got this document that he's given to Theophilus. I'm sure he had a copy for himself. And he knows that several people have sat down and tried to, you know, create a document that pieces together chronologically the life of Jesus. He had no idea that of all the many that were written and all the many that were attempted to be written, that his would be one of four that would survive. And not only would it survive, here's what happened to it. It was meticulously copied. And then it was distributed to Christians and little ecclesias. And some people memorized this entire document. And then as the years passed, it was demonized. It was collected with other Christian literature and it was burned. Toward the end of the third century, the very beginning of the fourth century, Emperor Diocletian, he was the last emperor to launch. In fact, he was really the first emperor to launch a really an empire-wide um, uh, persecution of Christians at the deepest level. And here's what Diocletian realized. He realized the reason we can't get rid of these crazy Christians and the reason we can't get the pagan, I mean, get our gods to be happy with us is because the Christians aren't making sacrifices and now the gods are angry, but we'll never get rid of the Christians until we get rid of their literature. Because understand, in the, in the ancient times, pagan religions, they didn't have literature. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have anything. They just, you just made sacrifices to the gods. You trusted the priest and you just hope things worked out. But these crazy Christians, they had stuff written down. This was new. I mean, the Jewish people had the Torah, but you had to go to synagogue. And that was, you know, a whole different thing. These crazy Gentile Christians had this literature that just fueled this, this epidemic of Christianity. So he decided, not only are we gonna arrest the bishops, not only are we going to shut down these little house gatherings, we're going to collect anything that looks like religious literature, and we're going to burn it. And part of what was collected and burned were copies of the gospel of Luke. But these brave, brave, brave Jesus followers in the late third century, 
early fourth century, they would risk and in some cases lose their lives, not simply over what they believed, but to protect this sacred, sacred literature that would eventually become part of your Bible, our new Testament. And the document of Luke, the account account of Jesus' life written by Luke was one of those documents along with the book of Acts. But by the end of the fourth, by the end of the third century, by the beginning of the fourth century, this literature had been so broadly distributed that even Diocletian with the power of Rome could do away with all that Christian literature. And then something remarkable happened. Constantine became the emperor. It's a fascinating story how he becomes emperor. His mother apparently was a Christian. Eventually he has this this vision that perhaps you've heard stories of. There's so many different stories, but essentially he lifts the ban. He lifts the ban on Christian worship and he allows the Christians to come out of the shadows and worship publicly. And when they come out of the shadows to worship publicly and their bishops and their scholars come out of the shadows, they are able to bring for the first time in human history, this literature that has fueled this movement that accomplished so much in the first 300 years of Christianity. And they're able to bring out copies of the gospels and copies of the letters of Paul and copies of the letter of James. And in some cases, they'd already been bundled together and they bring these out and the empire that crucified Jesus finances, finances the assembly of the very first Bible and the very first Bibles. And Constantine orders, according to one story, that 50 copies be made because he wants all the Christian bishops to be singing off the same sheet of music. They didn't, not really, but they want them to all have work off the same text. And so now you've got the wealth of the empire. You've got the best scholars bringing not hundreds, thousands and thousands of these manuscripts together. And um, and if, if we talked about this in our introduction to Jude, if you go listen to, to those messages, we talked about it's 331 AD, uh, 50 Bibles of Constantine were Bibles in the original Greek language commissioned in 331 by Constantine and prepared by Eusebius of Caesarea. They were made for the use of the Bishop of Constantinople and the growing number of churches in that very new city. Eusebius quoted the letter of commission in his life of Constantine, and it is the only surviving source from which we know of the existence of these Bibles. And it is speculated uh, that this commission may have provided motivation for the development of the canon list and that Codex Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are possible surviving examples of those 50 Bibles of Constantine. We talked about that because that all goes into defining the faith. So, see, he doesn't sound like he's like, hey, none of these documents are accurate or true. It seems he's making a completely different argument See, they, they, they preserved everything, and it's trustworthy. They risked their lives for these documents. He's seeming to be making an argument that not only they're reliable, they're trustworthy, and you should believe them. That seems to be he's going completely against, opposite to that one quote that, well, an entire news article was written to condemn. They compare and they compare and they compare and they compare and they authorize and they decided which of these documents are more authentic and where are the differences. And they put together the very first Bible. You see, the stories in the Bible about Jesus, they're not Bible stories. The story of Jesus, it's the story. It's the whole thing. If any one of the gospels 
It reflects the reality of Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. That's enough for us to sit up straight and pay attention because at the end of all four gospels, Jesus is crucified by Rome and buried and seen. And he rises from the dead. And suddenly this day laborer from Galilee, this day laborer turned rabbi, this man who said such extraordinary things, but it's never gonna catch on. We're not gonna love our enemies. Are you kidding? We're not gonna do for those who won't do for us. We're not gonna be generous to people who won't be generous in return. Are you? No, we're not, no, we're not gonna do any of that. He rose from the dead and it, something happened in the world. And it's why we're here. And it's why we need to pay attention. And it's why if you're starting to deconstruct your faith, I'm telling you all the things that have fascinated you that you've now lost your fascination with when it comes to faith, it really comes down to the gospels. It comes down to one gospel. And for the next few weeks, it's gonna come down to the gospel of Luke. So as we wrap up this first in the series, I wanna leave you with this. If you choose, and it's your choice, if you choose not to follow Jesus, because it's inconvenient, I get that. Because it is. Following Jesus will require something of you and following Jesus will require something from you. It's gonna require you to forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven. It's gonna require you to forgive people and you're gonna feel like you're giving them a gift after they've already taken something from you. Following Jesus is gonna require you to be less selfish, less full of yourself. Um, it's, it's, there are times when it's gonna be so extraordinarily inconvenient. So it's gonna, it's gonna cost you some money. Jesus said more about money than just about anything, way more than he said anything about heaven because Jesus knew that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And Jesus is after your heart. So if you follow Jesus, hang on to your purse and hang on to your checkbook. It's gonna cost you when you decide to follow Jesus. And if you decide to follow Jesus, it's gonna cost you some time because Jesus says that he, we are his body. And as part of his body, there are things we have to do and get to do for each other and for the world. So yeah, if you decide I'm not following Jesus, that takes too much time, it's too costly, it's too inconvenient. That is a somewhat valid reason not to follow Jesus. However, if you choose to follow Jesus, it will eventually make your life better and it will make you better at life. That's a guarantee. But if it's too inconvenient, I get that. That is somewhat of a valid reason not to follow Jesus. But... Please, please, please don't choose not to follow Jesus because you don't think there's anything to the story of Jesus. Because in spite of what you heard in college and in spite of what you've heard in culture, there is. So if you don't wanna follow Jesus because it's inconvenient, you're right, it's inconvenient. But don't give up on following Jesus because you don't think there's anything to the story of Jesus until you personally, as an adult, investigate the story for yourself. Because the only good reason, really, not to follow Jesus isn't that the Bible isn't true. It's that you decide that Luke isn't trustworthy that many people did not endeavor to tell and record the story of Jesus, that he did not carefully investigate everything, that he did not talk to the eyewitnesses, that he didn't actually know Peter and he didn't actually know James, the brother of Jesus, that he didn't carefully investigate everything from the beginning. But if you read it and you read the book of Acts, you may be convinced. You may be convinced of this, that 2,000 years ago, something extraordinary happened. 
something extraordinary for you and for your family and for us and for our culture and for our country and for every single generation. The story of Jesus had to be told and Luke chose to tell it. And we will pick up his story of the life of Jesus next time in part two of investigating Jesus, how we know and why we follow. There you have it. Completely different than the way the controversy put it forth. That's why we do this. That's why whenever I hear a controversy about a sermon, I'm going to review the entire thing because that's the only fair way to handle it. Now, do I like the way he did his opening illustration again? All he had to do was change the words just a little bit. All right, so you're about to leave the faith. You're about to question. You're deconstructing. Hey, 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 slow down, slow down. Maybe you question the Bible. Maybe you think these stories about a talking snake or a talking donkey and a global flood and saving all the animals on an ark. You may think all of that is ridiculous. You may think that that's not true. You may think it's made up of myth. Okay, okay, let's, for argument's sake, let's say that 65 of the books are not accurate, they're not inerrant, they're not true. What if I could show you that one book is true, and it gives us the entire story of Jesus, and if it gives us the entire story of Jesus, you couldn't walk away from the faith, because it would demonstrate Jesus is who he, who he said he was, it demonstrates who he was, it demonstrates what he did, demonstrates his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that you can't just walk away now. If he, if he kind of just said it that way, and in a roundabout way, when he gets to the end, that's kind of what he implies. But he, I mean, he starts talking about all of the documents being gathered together in the Bible, and he doesn't call into any of them into question. So, and again, the church's doctrinal statement says they believe all the Bible is inspired of God and is true without error. That's the doctrinal statement. So why don't we give them some kind of benefit of the doubt? Now, there's plenty of sermons. Hey, if you want to start reviewing Andy Stanley's sermons, I've reviewed plenty, and I'll be like, what in the world is that? What is going on? But I'm going to do it based off what's actually said in context of a full sermon, not, you know, one tweet. Now, I don't know why the tweet was sent out that way. Obviously, they sent out the tweet. Maybe what they were thinking, let's put the kind of, you know, scandalous tweet out then that'll get a people to listen to the sermon. Like, like maybe that's what the goal was. Maybe may, I, I would have to see the original tweet, but it got deleted. Maybe the tweet was there that had the quote and then underneath it had a link to the sermon. So maybe it was like, hey, look at this. Ooh, what did Andy Stanley say? And it was to get people to listen to the sermon. Now, again, sometimes when we try to come up with marketing schemes or our way to promote or get people to listen to a sermon, sometimes we end up making foolish decisions that actually hurt what we're trying to do. Maybe that's what the attempt was. I don't know. I don't have context of the tweet because, well, they deleted it. I understand they probably deleted it because immediately people started losing their minds and condemning it, but because people weren't going to go actually listen to the sermon. And if Andy Stanley and those who deal with his social media account I doubt it's Andy, Andy Stanley, probably whatever the team, whoever the team is. If they don't understand that by now, they need to wake up and realize that's the culture of American Christianity. Oh, oh, a preacher said this. Boom. Let's not investigate. Let's just go. Let's just let's just start condemning this sermon, this two minute sermon, this this three minute sermon clip. And please, you please, you don't be that kind of person. And maybe you can when you see it happening, maybe you can just kind of raise your hand and go, hey, guys, guys. Did anybody listen to the whole sermon? Did anybody bother? 
Did we, did we look up their doctrinal statement? Are, are we sure we're being fair here? Now, immediately you'll probably get attacked as being a liberal and an ungodly pagan because how dare we try to get all the information. Oh, but th- this is an example of why we have to listen to the entire sermon. I could have just read the news article, man. Andy Stanley's lost his mind. What kind of garbage is that? Because maybe there'll be a follow-up. Maybe there will be. Maybe there won't be. I don't know. I may not see the follow-up article. So I could have just walked away with a wrong understanding of Andy Stanley. And that would have been, listen, I think ultimately I would have walked away with a wrong understanding. I would have been bearing false witness against Andy Stanley in my mind. Now, I still don't like his opening illustration, but I, I think I see what he was trying to do. You can't bear false witness. You, you can't. You've got to get the facts. All right. And so if you even think about it, the all of the scandal and and, and controversy right now about MacArthur's church and, and what happened to Eileen Gray and all of that. I, I've even tried to say there, we've got, we, they, I do believe they need to give us uh, an answer. I do believe they need to give an account. I do believe that something is messed up. I believe the story is horrible. But if you've noticed, I've tried to be very careful to say, well, this is what should happen to this person and this, and this person should be fired and this person should be, you know, removed and this person should be disqualified. I've been trying to be very careful not to go and that direction. I just think we need to get all the facts and that the people who probably know the facts don't seem to be willing to give an answer. Those things we can point out. Those are kind of accurate things. So this is just another example of, man, just, yeah, I, 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 I think I know what Andy was trying to do there. And, uh, you you can you can you can maybe agree or disagree. I think we can all agree that the opening illustration was questionable to probably foolish to maybe downright just a bad idea. But if you've ever preached, if you've ever stood in front of people, you you, you come up with ideas all the time. Oh, this will be a great opening illustration. This will be a great illustration. And then when the sermon is over, you'll realize everyone's focused on the illustration. Everyone gets upset about the illustration, and I don't even remember what the sermon is about. And then you're like, well, that was obviously a dumb idea. My illustration overshadowed my entire sermon. <laughs> preachers, we make, I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but preachers are not perfect. So um, there you have it. All right, we finished it. We, we, I wanted to make sure we finished this before the day was over so that tomorrow, whatever we do, we can just start afresh. So um, thank you for listening. I do apologize for all of the craziness that happened in part one. Um, but hopefully part two is a little bit more calm. And I do would appreciate any prayers for my brother who's currently in the ICU because of multiple snake bites, uh, rattlesnake bites, if you're curious of what kind of snake uh, here in West Texas. So still, he's not doing very well. Uh, the arm is swollen and oh, oh it looks bad. So um, yeah, that's the situation. So if you'll pray, that'll be great. And uh, well, hopefully I'll, I'll give you an update tomorrow whenever I do a live broadcast of what's going on there. I'll see him uh, tomorrow morning at the hospital. I'll go, I'll go check on him. And then uh, tomorrow afternoon, probably sometime after three, we'll probably do a couple of hours, or at least one hour, maybe two hours of live broadcasting. So thank you. You can always email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great day. God bless.